Welcome to the vaccination station. My name is Dave, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Morris. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Yeah, so these so these are kind of, yeah, just outside my professional realm, but just personal things. So one thing is in when I was in college, I spent six months living in Nairobi, Kenya as an exchange student at a college over there. Um, and it really kind of transformed my life growing up in a small town. It showed me the world's a bigger place, was really transformative. Second thing is I love basketball. I've played all my life, um, you know, continue to play pickup, although the pandemic has thrown that off, but I love playing basketball. And then also um, uh, my, my strong Christian faith is a big part of who I am. And I like to think deeply about philosophical issues and just think about the broad issue of truth seeking. Thank you. That's really interesting. I'm also a Christian. So I, uh, I approach the world through the prism of faith. And I have found, like you, I've found it very interesting to study things like the way we think, the way we process information, how we shape our worldview, and the tools that make that possible. And I think that has a great relevance to unpacking the whole vax, anti-vax debate. So where did you study and what are your qualifications? So, so originally I got my bachelor's degree in mathematics education um, at Messiah College, which is a small liberal arts college in Pennsylvania. So I sort of got a liberal arts education with humanities as well. Um, and then a professor there introduced me to the field of statistics. And so after I completed my degree, I taught high school and coached basketball and golf in Florida for two years. And then I went back to graduate school um, and I went to uh, Texas A&M and got a PhD in statistics then in 2000 and decided to go into academia, was interested in biomedical research and cancer research in general. So I took my first job at MD Anderson Cancer Center as an assistant professor there and um, worked there for 20 years as a biostatistics professor working in cancer research. Uh, and then two years ago, moved up here to University of Pennsylvania to, uh, to be a professor of biostatistics here um, and for a leadership position, being the director of the Division of Biostatistics at the Perelman School of Medicine here at the University of Pennsylvania. So what was it that attracted you to biostatistics as a career? It was really the ability to use my math skills to solve important societal problems. Like I, I was always good in math and science, but I didn't want to just be isolated from others. Um, I wanted to, to do a job where I was interacting a lot with others. And I wanted to, to do a job where I could connect with important societal problems and make a difference. And so that's one of the things that um, was really appealing to me about statistics is that even though we are, of course, you know, what you might call math nerds, really biostatistics uh, is a very interactive field. We're always collaborating with others in many different fields. We have to be able to communicate well. We have to do, be able to develop relationships with people. And we get to meet and work, work with all kinds of different people. And a, a big part of that also is that 
Um, I, I love to learn about anything. And, and as a biostatistician, I get to work on many different projects and I get to learn about all of the key information in all of these areas. And so one um, famous statistician 50 years ago said, the greatest thing about being a statistician is that I get to play in everyone else's sandbox. And I think that's a great quote because that was definitely one of the appealing things to me. You get to learn all kinds of things, but you don't have to get bogged down in the technical details of every other area of science, but you get to work with the key principles and the key data, um, which to me is the fun part. So what advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in biostatistics? Well, one thing I would say is I, I, I think it's become a better known field in the last 10 or 15 years, but I think it's still a well-kept secret because um, I think there, there's so many job opportunities. If you look in Fortune Magazine's top 10 graduate degrees, five of the 10 are basically statistics or data science because there's so many jobs in every sector, in, in academia and in science and in government, in all industries, because we're living in an age of data and the ability to make sense out of data. Everybody wants it. And there's honestly not enough people in the world with the high expertise to do that. So if, if you're if you're interested, it's a great field to get into. There's great opportunities. Um, so my advice would be that a lot of people may not know that you don't have to like have a certain undergraduate major to go into statistics or biostatistics. Um, it's not like pre-med or pre-law or something. Um, you know, you could have almost any major as long as you have a core of several high, good math and science courses, computing background is helpful. You can go to graduate school for statistics or biostatistics or data science, you know, is becoming also a recognized field um, and go into it. So, um, uh, and, and, and in terms of biostatistics, biostatistics has really taken off, I think, um, with really just the explosion of big data and uh, really just, just lots of data from electronic medical records that biostatistics is really growing as well. And one, one thing I'll mention as well that's a great thing um, about biostatistics, I think, in the field is, um, you know, I know in, in the STEM fields, uh, you know, historically, women have really been underrepresented and sometimes have had a hard time in how they're treated in STEM fields. And, and I think that's something, you know, women still deal with today. But one, one good thing about the field of biostatistics is that we have many, many of the leaders in our field, including some of the top leaders are women. And we have a history of women leaders in our field. There's uh, a, a woman, Gertrude Cox, who was a professor back in the 1950s, who, um, who was really one of the world leaders in statistics at the time, started one of the top statistics departments in the country at North Carolina State University. So, so I think it's also a great field um, for women to get into because it's not something where if you get into the field, you're gonna be one of the few women. There's many women, there's many men working together. So I think, I think that's a big benefit as well. What can you tell me about the history of biostatistics? How did, how did it start? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, uh, like I think um, R.A. Fisher in the early 20th century has many times been called the father of statistics. He was a geneticist. And a lot of our, some of our core statistical principles um, for, for inference and how to process data um, that we've continued on started with R.A. Fisher, but, but also you could argue it goes back 
two centuries earlier to Reverend Thomas Bayes. Um, and, um, and honestly, if you look at some other people, you know, through the 17, 1800s, they were using statistics and developing the ideas behind it, even though they weren't um, using it. But so, but really, I think Ari Fisher in the early 20th century is where it was really recognized as a field. But then I think in the 20th century, it really took off. Um, there are several things, like one thing in the mid 20th century, um, in industry, the development of quality control and process control was huge, made, made great impacts. And then as we moved into the late 20th century, as we kind of moved into the era of data, really, the data-rich era that we're in now, that's where it has really taken off uh, because, you know, we can automatically co collect data. We have computers now to process data, like in... You know, even in the 70s and 80s, you know, you you didn't have the high level computing to do to deal with big data, to do advanced analyses, all the stuff we're doing now and take for granted you couldn't do. So so I think that that just that since then the field has just exploded. And I'll mention in terms of biostatistics, uh, the pharmaceutical companies drove a lot of the growth as well because of so much drug development, and it was recognized that. Uh, biostatistics and and um, design and analysis and reproducibility was very crucial scientifically. And so the pharmaceutical industry started hiring a lot of biostatisticians. So that created a large industry outlet for the field to grow. And then really um, the field of biostatistics has really exploded, honestly, just since I was in graduate school because of the high level of uh, biomedical research and the grant funding from the NIH and other sources has enabled places to hire many faculty because many of, many of us working as biostatistics professors get so many grants it essentially pays for almost our whole salary. So that enables the universities to allow these groups to grow as long as those grant funds continue to come in to cover the salary. And I think that's really enabled the field to grow as well. What do you enjoy most about your job and for that matter what does a statistical data scientist actually do right so well so um so one thing i want to mention just as kind of a setup so what a statistical data scientist does i want to mention something about sort of what i view like biostatistics as a field as representing science science and i think the, the way, the way I, I define really statistics is the science of data. It's, it's the, you know, a set of mathematical and scientific principles being developed to figure out how to collect data and how to analyze data, especially in order to make inference on populations from samples, be able to make statements about the whole population from a sample and be able to make statements and understand processes from samples in that process. So it's really the science of data that involves a combination of mathematics, computing, and scientific method. So then thinking of what we actually do, you know, based on that definition, um, you know, it really depends on where you work and what your um, field is, whether you're government, um, industry, or academia. But but essentially the core components are that you're you tend to be involved in a lot of interdisciplinary projects and helping design studies in a careful way to be able to best answer the questions that they're trying to answer. And then also analyzing data in order to interpret 
accurately what those data tell you about the whole process or about the population, what it does and doesn't tell you. And then a big component of that that really comes into play for academic uh, statisticians and biostatisticians is developing new, new tools and new designs to take advantage of the emerging data and the emerging data types and figure out how to better extract the information from them. So I think that's those are kind of the big components, but what you do kind of depends on, you know, on your actual job description, because there's a lot of variety of jobs and, and, and settings that biostatisticians will work in. And what is it that you find most fulfilling about this work? So I think, um, I think what I enjoy, well, I'm being an academic biostatistician, one thing I really enjoy is the freedom, you know, the, the academic freedom to work on what I want to, but, but the ability for me to try and figure out what are the key unsolved problems that I think I can make a difference and, and help push science ahead. And so I really enjoy sort of working on unsolved open-ended problems and trying to find creative solutions. Um, and then in finding those solutions, try and figure out how to put them to work and disseminate them. So, you know, to provide value to others, to help others get more, more information from their data. Why is your work important? What does it allow us to do that we couldn't do before the science of biostatistics existed? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. So I think, I think the key, the key reason the work is important is that literally every, everything in the world is all about data now. And so, you know, whatever you're talking about, whatever institution um, you're talking about, for them to make their decisions and do things, they need to figure out how to in accurately interpret that data. Um, and, and so that's why it's very important is, is that, you know, it's, it's ubiquitous. It's an ubiquitous problem figuring out what to do with data. But the other thing is that it's tricky. It's trickier than it appears many times. Um, many times, you know, and we've seen this in the pandemic, many times you see some data and some numbers and something appears to be true. It looks really clearly true at first glance. But when you carefully analyze or think about the context or think about other confounding factors and other tricky issues with the data, that thing that appears to be true may be precisely untrue. And so I think having the ability to discern from data what's true and not have the appropriate level of uncertainty and avoid some of the pitfalls um, and really just some of the um, some of the paradoxes some of the fallacies that mislead people when they look at data um, to really try and help help people not fall for those help people accurately get the information from the data and then the other aspect that i think is really important is the development of new methods is really crucial in the world we're in because we're getting larger and larger data sets, very complex structured data. And this presents uh, enormous challenges. Just to even process the data and do anything to it can be computationally difficult. But also because the tendency of what people do with big complex data is they try and very quickly just compute a couple quick summaries from the data. And then they set aside the complex data and just move forward analyzing those summaries because then we can use the existing tools that we know that we're comfortable with on those summaries. And so that approach 
is fine and it's very logical and helpful if those summaries capture all the information in the data. But in, in the modern world, many times those summaries don't capture the key information in the data. And so they're leaving a lot of meat on the bone you know, by taking that approach. And I think it's, it's crucial. And this is one thing that sort of drives my, my research and my leadership in biomedical research is I think this is especially true in biomedical research with electronic medical records, with genetic and genomic data, and with, uh, with the imaging data that we have. I see a lot of waste where people are not getting the information out of the data efficiently. And I think part of the, the problem is the lack of methods and expertise to more efficiently do that. And that sort of falls on us as biostatisticians, as well as other quantitative data scientists to sort of do a better job of developing those tools and training people and, and allowing them to use those tools so that we can learn more efficiently from this incredibly informative data out there. Thank you. That's a really great answer. And it helps to answer the next question I was going to ask, which is how your work interacts with that of other science professionals, such as epidemiologists. So as I understand it, you help to provide the data sets that epidemiologists can work with. And you don't just provide an overview. Overview. You drill down very deep to look at different factors, correlations, causations, and you present a, a detailed analysis of the data that other people can use within the context of their own professions. Is that a fair summary? I, I, yeah, I think that is true, exactly, because we, we collaborate with all kinds of science professionals, doctors, scientists, policymakers, including epidemiologists, and work with them. And a lot of times, some of our, our most important contributions happen on the front end. And ensuring that the way they collect their data and collect their samples will enable them to answer their questions. Because many times people collect data and once you see the data, it cannot answer that question because they, because of, you know, just the way they, um, you know, the design, some biases there or things they didn't measure that are important. So, so we work with them on the design and we do um, sometimes like do analyses, do more thorough analyses. Um, and, and we also can provide high level support for some of the analysts, like as faculty, we can provide high level support for some of the analysts, because some of these groups will have their own sort of ground level analysis that do the key number crunching, but we can kind of provide the high level expertise to guide them to make sure they're using the best methods and doing that. And another thing with, with epidemiologists, it's interesting because Epidemiology kind of has in a Venn diagram overlaps some with biostatistics. And in fact, in our department at Penn, we have three disciplines in our department, epidemiology, biostatistics, and informatics. And, and there is some overlap because epidemiologists are quantitative scientists as well. They're, they're clinically, they're more clinically focused, but they tend to work with, uh, with observational and population level data. And, and that's where their focus is and because of that, some of the key statistical issues with observational data, you know, including a field called causal inference, that's very important. A lot of epidemiologists are experts in that area as well. Uh, but then biostatisticians working in that area can sometimes bring a higher level of technical expertise in mathematics in developing some of these causal inference methods 
and working with them. And we have many people who are sort of wear both hats, you know, some epidemiologists who are kind of biostatisticians and biostatisticians that you could call epidemiologists. Um, so there's, there's definitely a lot of sort of overlap um, in those fields. Are there any ethical guidelines for biostatisticians? And if so, what kind of ethical issues might arise, aside, of course, from the, the standard thing of anonymizing data so that people's privacy is pr protected? That's right. Yes, privacy is a very, very important issue. But I think a lot of a lot of the key factors are transparency. Like when we when we conduct an analysis, you know, we're trained and we train our students to be very explicit about all the assumptions you make to check your assumptions. Um, and also reproducibility has become a big buzzword to demonstrate reproducibility of your analytical scripts and try and ensure that um, the way you're doing the analysis will lead to reproducible results. Um, and that's because that's one thing that's a big problem for science is that um, if, especially if this, the statistics are not done correctly, um, uh, but even otherwise, sometimes you do a study and you have some results that seem true in a study and it gets published, but then no one can reproduce those results. They're spurious results that looked true in that one data set, but didn't really reflect the real process or the population. And sometimes you just get unlucky that you have a sample that makes something look true and you can't tell it's not true in the population, uh, but then it doesn't get reproduced. And, I, and that's a real problem for science because it leads people down the wrong trail. Um, and so so I think a big, a big part of our field is to try and help science be more reproducible um and and there's there's some basic principles that are very important um that we have to sort of protect science against and we have to not do them ourselves like one of one of them is data dredging where you have a lot of data and you just look at a whole bunch of things to find a pattern and then when you find that pattern you you talk about it as though it was the thing you were looking for as though it was your hypothesis when really you look at 100 different things and and just by the nature of um, of big data and, and, and multiple testing, if you look at many things in any data set, there's going to be patterns that appear to be true. There's always that. And th those are spurious, many of those are spurious results. And so if you don't disclose that you're looking at many things and you're only reporting the one that looked good, you know, that's dishonest and it's misleading. So if you're looking at many things, you have to disclose that. And, th and there's a lot of methods that have been developed in the past 20 years, especially with big data emerging in genetics, where we have really big data sets to sort of protect you against those um, false positive results. Um, and, and so I think that's definitely a big ethical issue in terms of how we practice statistically. But, but the interesting thing about it is many times um, we find ourselves sort of being policemen and trying to make sure that other scientists aren't making these mistakes and um, analyzing their data improperly and, you know, and, and getting ir irreproducible research. So sometimes we do feel like we have to play this role of policeman to, um, to tell our collaborators, well, you can't really say that from this data. This data doesn't strongly support that. You know? And we, we're always trying to get them to be very cautious about the uncertainty, you know, conveying the uncertainty of their result, not overstating the result. And if they're looking at many things, 
you, you have to talk about that in a different way. And so, you know, so many times it puts us in a position of having to, to try and encourage our collaborators to, to interpret the data more carefully than they might want to. You mentioned earlier a, a principle um, that's actually cemented very deeply in academia, but perhaps less well-known and understood outside it. And that principle is academic freedom. Can you explain to the audience what academic freedom is, why it's so important, and how it operates in practical terms? Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So when you're when you're in academia at a university, there, there's an understanding that you have academic freedom, that you have the ability to choose what research you do, and you get to choose your your viewpoints, and um, and you're not going to be you know let go because of of your area of research as long as you're being productive. So there's so there's freedom to choose the problems that you work on, um, and and freedom. To explore the ideas that you think are true, and and that's where the tenure system um, historically is is a really important component of academic life. That um, especially once you're tenured, you have sort of an extra level of protection um, that that sort of cements that academic freedom. Because when, when that first um, evaluation for your tenure decision is a big bar, you know that you have to cross. That you really have to prove yourself as an established researcher at that point. Um, and if you haven't done that, then you have to leave. But then once you have that tenure, it really cements that, that academic freedom. So, so really it's, yeah, the ability to, um, you know, to work on what you think is important um, and determine that for yourself without, without coercion from your institution. But what if you arrive at a conclusion that's quite controversial? Maybe it's still a minority position in academia. It doesn't reflect the consensus. And maybe it starts to attract some headlines and people start to contact your university about it. How does, uh, how does academic freedom come into play there? Well, and, you know, and ideally, you know, a, a professor at a university won't... Um, you know, that, that the university will not take that and try and make them stop doing that research. You know, that's that's ideally the way it is. Although, you know, maybe sometimes the political pressure is great and maybe some universities will put pressure. I can say, like, from my experience at University of Pennsylvania, that I haven't experienced that at all. And, you know, with my COVID data science blog, I've I've been free to to give whatever viewpoint you know that I see fit. And some of my viewpoints have been critical of FDA or CDC or of certain aspects of the vaccines or, or anything like that. And, um, and the administration has never talked to me in any way or put any pressure to say, hey, you need to have a pro-vaccine message or you know, a pro-CDC, a pro-FDA message. There's, there's been zero contact like that. And I think that's the way the system is supposed to work. Now, I think, I think where, um, you know, where bias can, can come in academia is, is um, you know, sometimes the, you know, through the peer review process, when we publish papers, we're going to be reviewed by our, our peers. And so, and so if, if I have a, a viewpoint that goes against the established view in the field, um, you know, it's of course more difficult to publish, but, but in general, in science, it, it's, um, you know, it's not that they want to keep publishing the same ideas. The whole scientific enterprise is about exploring the things we don't know 
And so there's a value for alternative viewpoints and and different perspectives. But if you're if you're making claims that go against the current state of knowledge, you have a higher burden of proof. But through the scientific method, you have an avenue to make your case. And so if if the whole field believes something and you have solid data, you have good scientific method and you make the case, then we've seen historically science will change its views as as knowledge emerges. So the system is not set up and run by, you know, by people pushing political or policy agendas. The scientific community, I think, you know, is driven by by truth seeking and there's kind of an independent spirit in many scientists that that tries to resist any such coercion. And so um yeah, so I think that that's, you know, that's very important. And, and you know, you can see it in, um, you know, in, in how uh, the National Institute of Health funds, uh, funds grants, research grants. They don't say, hey, we want you to do these areas of research. They'll mention some areas of interest, but people come up with their own areas of interest and they come up with a plan and they put it in. Um, and, and it's not the NIH, but it's the peers in the scientific field that evaluate which work has merit. So it's not it's not a top down approach. It's very much of a um, sort of on the ground approach where scientists are encouraged to come up with their own novel ideas and pursue them. So this comes back to then the the system of, of science as a self correcting discipline, peer review and additional studies, maybe meta-analysis and this kind of thing, where more than one person gathers around and looks at what's been published, looks at what's been presented and tests it through their own experimentation and, and trial and study. And that's how we end up with the most robust conclusions because more and more people begin to test them and explore them. And the more more people arrive at the same results, the more robust the conclusions become. Absolutely. That's right. And that's, and that's how the system works is it's, it's supposed to be driven by, by the data and empirically. So even if there's a new idea, if it's demonstrated to be true, and then people validate it, it becomes kind of the new state of knowledge. And this is one thing that I think much of the public misunderstands the nature of science, because you hear, whenever I see the article, the before science, it usually conveys this misunderstanding that we say, this is what the science says. And, and I think some people think of science as a collection of absolute truth, true facts. And as scientists, we learn what those facts are. And then we're sort of like, you know, think of it like a, a medieval priest that we have this knowledge and we're giving it to the congregation. And we're, we're saying, hey, here, this is what science says. And everyone says, oh, thank you for enlightening us with your truth. This is what the science says. And so people think of science as a set of incontrovertible truths that come empirically. And they think of it as the source of knowledge. Now, science is the best way, the best way to get knowledge that can be determined empirically, but it's obviously not the source of all truth. But, but, um, but getting back to these scientific facts, this is what throws people off. And especially during the pandemic is that Anything, there are things scientifically that are pretty much incontrovertible truths. They've been demonstrated so much, so much over time. They're not questioned anymore. We have so many mountains of data. It would take an enormous amount 
to change that viewpoint. It's so solidified. We have so much evidence for it. But honestly, those things are not the things that scientists are talking about or working on. Because if it's done, it's done. Everything scientists are working on, by definition, are the things we don't know about. There's always uncertainty. So even when a big scientific study comes out, you know, people want to say, oh, well, this study showed it. It's truth. Well, I mean, it, it's the wrong way to look at it. If it's a new result and it's, it's a very strong study, large study, then it's like, oh, wow, we've learned this principle. Now we have evidence for this. But, but most of the things we're learning still have a lot of uncertainty related to that. And we could gather more information, more data and realize, well, that's not quite right. And many times what it is, is it's that it's not that we learn that, oh, those results were wrong, but it's just about refining the nuances of knowledge. Like we discover something and we say, hey, okay, this is true. Um, but then as we get more information, we're like, oh, well, it's not, that's not quite it. You know, there's, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little different. And then, but then gradually, like you said, it's a self-correcting process and given enough data that is openly evaluated and evaluated accurately, eventually it converges to the two principles to the degree that we can discover them. But by the way, that's also why I enjoy being in biostatistics because really where the role we play in that process is um, trying to say um, what is the knowledge that can come from the data? What are the insights? And very importantly, as biostatisticians, we're all about quantifying the uncertainty. Because when you find a result in a study, it's never black and white. There's always a level of uncertainty. And sometimes the results are so strong, the uncertainty is small. And you can hang your hat on that principle. Like we've learned it, it's very unlikely to change. But sometimes we learn something and it seems like the best knowledge, but there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. And we might wanna act on it for now, but we might wanna tread a little bit lightly, recognizing there's a high level of uncertainty. And as more data accrues, this thing we thought was true might not quite be true. And, and that shouldn't be something when the public sees that, that should threaten them. I think when that happens, the public somehow thinks science isn't working or something, but that's actually how science is working. That as we accrue new knowledge, we're adjusting the nuances of our understanding. And, and sometimes things change. And this is especially true in the pandemic. When we knew almost nothing about this virus, about how it was spreading, um, about how to treat it, about how to prevent its spread, about what the population dynamics were, of how in what situations it was going to spread. All of that we learned in real time. And what we thought initially, a lot of it wasn't right. But over time, we've learned how it's working and we've adjusted to it. And, and I think a lot of people were thrown off by the fact that some of the early recommendations turned out to be wrong, as if they're lies somehow. But it's not. That was just the state of knowledge they had. That was the best understanding they had. As they got more data, of course, they updated their understanding. And, and you know, so science is always gathering information and learning. And really, science is really about that process of empirically discovering the type of truth that can be discovered from science through empirical um, means. And I like the way you've put that because that does touch on the, the popular trope that see, you see all over social media. Oh, how can we trust the government? How can we trust the scientists? They seem to change their ideas and their, and their, right their recommendations on a weekly basis, blah, 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 all the, the usual exaggerations and, and straw men. And of course, it, it's nothing like that. 
<clears throat> when science encounters something new, some new information or a new situation, science proceeds with caution. Science responds with nuance and science adapts as more information is acquired. And as a result of that, the shape of that science and the way that science is expressed and acted upon will necessarily adapt as well. And that is the most sensible way to deal with empirical data and objective knowledge. There's nothing floppy or, or weak or inconsistent about it. That is actually the most consistent way and the most efficient way to approach the data and to, to act upon the information that you have at the time. And as you said, you, you, all you can do is act on the best information you have at that time. And if the information improves or, or some of it is disproven and you need to change to a new perspective, then that's what you do. And science is perfectly equipped to handle that. Whereas people tend to look at it and think, well, all scientists must have believed this. And now all scientists have realized they were completely wrong about that thing. That is definitely not how science works and it's not how scientists work either. Scientists are far more conservative in their approach to new information and new knowledge. And they're far more conservative ar about arriving at very concrete opinions or conclusions on the basis of information that is still so new, it hasn't been fully explored. And that's where I think the pandemic has, has really demonstrated to perhaps the trained eye more than the untrained eye, the, the beauty of science and its, its practical nature and the way it works so well in, in the Western scientific method. Uh, it's, the problem is that the, the average person on the street who, who lacks the, um, the, the training or the understanding of the way these, these systems operate views it through a layperson's perspective and said, well, they just changed their mind. It all seems very arbitrary to me when in actual yeah. fact, it's not arbitrary at all. It's, it's driven by very concrete information and, and data that's coming through. I, I completely agree. And I, I think that's why a very um, underrated field that we need to think more about is scientific communication. It's crucial. And one, one thing I see as a researcher is Many times you submit a paper that you feel good about and you have a reviewer that just slams it and then they make comments that that are like, did you even read this paper? You know, you you don't understand, you know, did you even read it? You don't understand this and you think bad things about the reviewer. But then once you look at the paper, you're like, you know what, I didn't make that that clear. So maybe the fact that that person didn't understand it is as much a reflection of my failure to communicate it clearly as it is their ability to understand. And so, you know, anyone in academia can tell you um, they've learned that lesson, at least hopefully they learned that lesson pretty quickly. But, but I think it's really true with scientific communication because these nuances are tricky and to the public, it is very confusing, especially when we're talking about a pandemic where we're starting with such a low base of knowledge. As it accrues, a lot of things change in our understanding. But, and, and that's one thing that I felt like we haven't done a great job at, honestly, anywhere in the world, you know, is really communicating the accruing knowledge as it happens and try and explain it to the public. And, and I, honestly, I can't blame people in the public for being confused and even angry because like, how, how can we expect them to understand all of this? So like what, what you know, I've said this before that I, in the US, I would love it if early in the pandemic, if the CDC, would have appointed a person to be a scientific communication leader for the pandemic 
that their sole job would be to keep up with the emerging knowledge every week of what the science is saying and aggregate it. And then weekly go and communicate with the public and tell them, you know, tell them, hey, you know, this is the information that came out. And these are the things that we thought before that now we don't think they're true anymore. And this is why. And so now we think, you know, that this is the way to go. And there's un and maybe communicate the uncertainty. And I think for that, I think that would have helped tremendously if they picked the right person. And I think the right person, a very important component is it would have to be a person that's very disciplined to remain apolitical and not be partisan, knowing how divided, you know, in the US, we're very divided. I think all around the world, there's a lot of political divisiveness. There's a lot of trigger words. There's a lot of things. And I think such a person would have to understand both sides, what their perspectives are, what their triggers are, and really try and, and what their concerns are and what their understanding is and find a way to communicate the message that can connect with people at, um, you know, different ends of the political spectrum and and communicate some of that uncertainty and and maybe it's a little bit of a you know pie in the sky naive idea to think you know that that would help but i really think that 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 could have helped and i think we need to think that way about scientific communication in society we need to have people that do a better job of that and we need for the public to know to look to those people to to explain what is going on but again it takes a lot of discipline in giving that message in a way so that people will receive it. And that means having an understanding of people's political viewpoints and thoughts and, and disciplining themselves to not let their own political biases drive their message, to try and really, you know, reign as neutral as you can to try and connect with as many people as you can. I really appreciate the clarity of that explanation. And I think it's important for more people to hear and understand from a scientist that there are plenty of scientists who recognize that this is an ongoing issue. More needs to be done about it. It's just that not every scientist is in a position to do something about it on the scale that the public needs. And that is where, as I, I think you suggested earlier, government departments and uh, NGOs, for example, have a greater role to play. They also have the resources to take on that role and to make it very effective. And I think that is definitely something that may, needs to be done uh, promptly, particularly in the case of, say, a, a national health emergency and in response to a new virus where information seems to be changing rapidly and uh, what we know about the virus will will differ, say, one month to, to the next, depending on what we've learned over the last few weeks. And it's vital that the public understands that these changes and these, these apparent shifts are not arbitrary at all. They are driven by what we know at any given time based on the very best possible scientific methods. And that is, is what really needs to be communicated above all. And yeah, it's... This is where I think I've, I've regularly seen, consistently seen, both talking with scientists on, on this podcast and, and discussing uh, this, the issue with them online, the disconnect between the, the public and the, the academy um, and the lack of communication facilitated between the two. There needs to be a greater 
recognition of that problem and more work put into it, particularly by the media, who traditionally have been absolutely woeful at communicating science information because what they want is a headline that will grab attention and then they want an article that's as simple as possible so right. they have to simplify as maths massively and they typically do not have a dedicated or, or trained science editor or science media communicator but if there was a specialized person maybe with a bit of a scientific background and at the very least a uh, whole bunch of academics and scientists on speed dial that they could consult with on this stuff. That is where I think we would start to see some, some better communication. So yeah, it is an ongoing problem and it's, it's not just the media and it's not just academia and it's not just the government and it's not just the corporate world. It's, it's all of those things. And there needs to be some kind of greater synchronization between all of, of those compartments and all of those fields so that we actually get a more consistent, more robust message in a way that people can understand. But yeah, that's not something we're going to solve within the scope of this podcast. So I will move on. I want to talk just quickly about error checking in the field of biostatistics. So as I understand it, you often have to deal with very large data sets and for the for the average person such as myself it could be hard to understand how you could simply slog through vast amounts of data uh, for however long you do it at whatever stretch at a time and not become fatigued or worn out or simply make little mistakes firstly how do you stay focused when analyzing large sets of data and what kind of error checking is in place to make sure that what you have actually produced is accurate? Well, w- one thing is that, yeah, and a, a lot of what's important with big data is you need to come up with some types of automatic data processing because you're not just going to go through and look at every data point. You know, these data sets are enormous, but that's what modern methods, you know, do a really good job of that. But if you understand the nature of the data, you pick the appropriate method, you can use the computational tool and, and, the, the computer will do the analysis and sort of get the conclusions that that you can then assess. So it's good that there's not a lot of like grunt work um, in doing the computing. It's about, you know, finding the right method and there's a software to apply that method and then applying it to the data. And sometimes with big data, it might take a long time even for the computer, you know, to run it. And so sometimes there's practical computational issues of you know, what, what types of models uh, you know, a given data set can be, you know, can handle what can that the computing can handle for that. But I think that a key thing with big data that is unique is that if you just have a small data set, people tend to really look at the data, look at simple plots and try and understand the basic intuition before jumping in and doing a lot of fancy modeling. And so you can kind of see the basic things. I think sometimes people are a little bit sloppy with big data not to do that because it's, it's harder to do that. And so sometimes people will just run complicated algorithms, get results and report the results without really checking whether they seem right and whether it really matches. So I think with big data, as as much as any data, it's really important to sort of figure out ways to plot your data, to sort of assess the feasibility of the conclusions that come, um, you know, and just look a little bit more carefully, uh, you know, at that. And, um, you know, and I think some people don't do that as much as they should, but I think that's one of the things that I do just to make sure that I'm not 
you know, missing out on something or that something didn't go wrong in the algorithm and give a nonsense answer, you know, to really check it against some basic plots and, and intuition about the data. And, and as I kind of mentioned before, one of the tricky things with big data is worrying about if the patterns you're seeing are real patterns or are they spurious patterns, you know, and an example of this is, um, you know, if, if, if I bet you, um, if I bet you a hundred bucks, you know, um, a pop, a coin flip, I win if it's heads, you win if it's tails. You know, if, if I keep winning 10 times in a row, you're going to think I'm cheating, right? So you're going to think that the coin can't be fair. But if you ask a million people to flip a coin 10 times, we expect a thousand of them are going to be 10 heads. So if you look at a million people and you go and pick out the thousand that are 10 heads, you shouldn't go and accuse those people of cheating and having an unfair coin. Because when you look at a million things, sometimes there's patterns that look like they're real. It looks like that coin might not be a fair coin because all 10 heads came up. But when you give it a million chances, that's bound to happen. And that's part of what statistics does is it uses that analytical reasoning to quantify the probability of those rare events. But this becomes really dangerous in big data because um, you can overfit the data or you can do data dredging and you can find some patterns that look very convincing. But it's just like going into those million coin flips, million people that flip coins and taking the one that got 10 heads and then talking about how that person's a cheater. You know, and it's and, and that's where you have to be really careful when you get into this magnitude of big data. You have to think very carefully about the level of evidence. And in calculating the level of evidence and the uncertainty, you have to account for the enormous size of the data. What visual tools do you use when presenting your results? And how would you communicate your statistical findings to an untrained audience? So really in presenting our results, um, you know, just different types of figures, different tables. And I think that um, an, an important art form really is thinking creatively about what type of visual display will communicate the key insights accurately. So I think there's, there's a lot of thought that has to be put into that. And just technically, I mean, there's various packages. If you really want to be fancy, um, Adobe packages have a lot of you know, flexibility and power to make really nice figures, uh, but it also can take a little longer. Um, but sometimes, uh, you know, we can just use PowerPoint to put together some slides and some of the analytical software we have, like one of the commonly used packages is called R. It's a sort of a free, a free package for statistical analysis. There's a lot of nice graphics there. So, you know, so people can use that. And I think, um, I think communicating and, you know, as I kind of mentioned, I think a, a big and important part of biostatistics is communication because being able to communicate to our collaborators, communicate to the public, communicate in papers, what is the evidence in the data? Um, you know, we want, we want to be able to do that accurately. And so we want to avoid sort of jargon, you know, avoid technical details that are unimportant um, and figure out a way to summarize the key points uh, and, and, you know, we can connect with things that people are familiar with, uh, you know, make analogies to sort of help them understand if there's some tricky principle to convey, try and figure out something that is common that you can kind of relate it to. You've no doubt heard the saying lies, damned lies and statistics. Now, I, I went looking for a, an original source for this quote. It turns out nobody's quite sure where it came from. But it's become popular as a way of expressing public skepticism 
about the use of statistics in an argument. And a related saying is you can prove anything with statistics. But how accurate is this really? Can you, can you actually prove, really prove, inverted commas, anything with statistics? Or is it always possible to show that the figures were tortured until they said what somebody wanted to hear? Yeah, so, so, so to say you can prove anything with statistics is obviously overstating a little. I mean, sometimes there's just nothing in the data you can grab onto to make some points. But I think there's a reason for that saying, and it's it's a, unfortunately a very apt saying because um, when you have data, you can choose to display it certain ways. You can cherry pick certain aspects of the data, leave other aspects out. You can even choose particular analytical methods in order to try and tease out a particular response if you want to be dishonest. And so I, so I think that that is a concern. Um, and that's why I think we always have to think critically when people draw conclusions and we, you know, uh, and we need to ask people where they get their evidence, like show your evidence. Let's see your results. Let's see your data. Let's see the plots. And that's where people need to be educated to know what are some of the tricks that people will do to mislead people and know what questions to ask, know how to recognize these. And it's funny because sometimes as a statistician, because of this principle, people kind of think that we are the ringleaders of doing this, right? That we're the experts of doing this. But honestly, it's kind of the opposite, that we are the policemen trying to call out the people who are doing this. Like that, that, that's what I find more often than not is trying to you know, debunk mis, misinterpreted data and, and even working with collaborators, you know, like I was saying before, you know, trying to, they want to say something really grandiose from a study and the data doesn't quite support it. And just getting them to see, no, you can't quite make that strong of a statement. And, and making sure that our analytical workflow is transparent and takes into account some of these, you know, what we call hidden multiplicities of looking at a bunch of different things and then cherry picking the one that tells your story, disciplining yourself not to take that approach, to, to lay out your analytical plan and carry it out and interpret the data and move forward, you know, and that's where sort of the professional ethic comes into play. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you online? So, yeah, you can go to my Penn website, um, although I have to admit I don't have it very well updated, but I hope in the near future to update you know, with a lot of my recent research, you can find stuff there. Um, and if you're interested in some of the stuff I've done on COVID, I have the covid-datascience.com blog post, where now I think I've done about close to 250 blog posts. And my my goal in, in, in that arena, it really is for the public. It's not really for statisticians or scientists in particular, but it's sort of my own efforts to evaluate the emerging data in the pandemic, try and use my skills as a statistical data science to sort of evaluate and synthesize that information and try and communicate what I see the day, data saying. And of course, I that's only a part-time thing because I have many other responsibilities, but I um, so I don't have as much time to do as much as I'd like on that. But I've tended to try and focus on topics where if I feel like there's a large portion of society that is misunderstanding something, or if I see someone making what um, what I recognize as a specious argument that isn't supported by the data and it's influencing many people to think a certain way. And if I'm really confident that that's not accurate, those are those are the times when I try and take the time to do a blog post and 
try and explain why I don't think that's true or why I think that, you know, that some emerging, emerging knowledge is true. And I think, you know, and, and throughout that, like some, some of the things that I post on will, will be critical of some of the ideas floating around with, um, you know, with people that are, are skeptical about the vaccines or about the seriousness of the pandemic sort of on that side. But then I also have posts that are critiquing some of the official viewpoints and some of the blind spots that I see coming from the policymakers. You know, some of the, the things that are very clearly true in the data that don't seem to be acknowledged by the official policymakers. And maybe, you know, I try not to get into talking about policy prescriptions, but, you know, suggesting maybe they need to look at more data and adapt their policies. Dr. Morris, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. This has been a fascinating discussion, and I hope the audience learns as much from it as I have. Again, it's been really great to talk to you. I will post a link to your blog so that everyone else can get the benefit of it, and I'll include that link on the podcast as well. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it.